a lot of the ways that the uh, Lebanese political class prevents a conversation from happening about reform is that it keeps people divided and it it emphasizes sectarianism is a tool that the ruling classes use to divide the population and to kind of prevent any challenges to their hegemony. You're listening to The Live Drop. I'm Mark Valley. Uh, this is one of those episodes where we don't really talk about spy-related matters, but rather I'd like to think of myself as more of a collector, bringing intelligence to you, the listeners. Uh, my guest is Emily Whalen. Emily is a historian of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. She's a doctoral candidate in history at the University of Texas, Austin. She's also an Ernest May pre-doctoral fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, Soon-to-be Dr. Whalen essentially offers a thorough country profile, starting literally with ancient history to the present unrest in Lebanon. We discuss how the political system represents various ethnic and sectarian groups and identities in modern-day Lebanon, along with an explanation of the rise and resiliency of Hezbollah. With COVID-19 pressuring an economic disaster, Lebanese are at a crisis point. In this episode, we hear from someone who's lived in Beirut and made the troubled and fascinating country her life's work so far. This was recorded just before the Black Lives Matter movement, and the civil strife in the streets of Beirut only weeks early reflect a surprising similarity. Out of political and social division has risen a popular consensus for the need for reforms. Begin transmission. So I'm a, I'm a graduate. I'm technically still a graduate student. I'm a PhD candidate in history at the University of Texas at Austin, but I'm on what's called a pre-doctoral fellowship. So basically, in the last two years of writing, you can get offered fellowships at various institutions, and they'll sort of bring you on for like visiting years uh, while you're doing your writing. So I'm d- working with the Belfer Center this year um, as what's called an Ernest May Fellow. It's named after a very famous historian, Ernest May. And um, it's the our focus of the program here is on applied history. So on using history to advise policymakers and to sort of inform uh, policy debates. Okay, cool. Yeah. That helps because I was trying to think of how to kind of format this interview. I mean, essentially, yeah. you have somebody who knows an awful lot about Lebanon and somebody who doesn't. Sure. <laughs> um, you know, my podcast is about, you know, diplomacy, intelligence collection, as espionage. Yeah. And I, I've just noticed some of the books that I've kind of been digging into and reading have a little bit more to do with um, Lebanon, not necessarily in yeah. the present, but um, there seems to be like a growing bit of attention. Um, so I thought maybe it'd be cool to talk to you about this place and kind sure. of get like a... Uh, get like maybe a country profile. Your sort of journey to being interested in Lebanon is a way that a lot of people get interested in the country is because it does have this kind of um, reputation as this hotbed for spies, <laughs> particularly during the war mm-hmm. years. And so you get these really interesting stories that come out of there. But there, um, yeah, there's not a lot that gives the kind of broader context to, to give all of that meaning and depth um, instead of getting these little flashes or vignettes of stories. Lebanon also seems like this place where you don't really pay attention to it until something blows up and you think, <laughs> oh, I should have been watching this. Yeah, well, you know, you're in good company there. I think probably every, almost every American president since about um, since about Gerald Ford has probably had that experience. So that is a very common, <laughs> very common um, sort of reaction to the place. It is, you know, I when I was living there, I lived there in 2013, 2000, excuse me, 2017, 2018. And I, uh, when I told people that I lived there, either they thought I lived, I was living this kind of like 
playboy, Omar Sharif, you know, going to the casino kind of lifestyle, or they thought I was living in a bombed out, like, you know, like basically a bunker, right? There was just like nothing in between. And the thing that's fantastic about Lebanon is that it is- Dusty refugee camp. Yeah, yeah. And it is a place of just these really big extremes. Um, And while obviously, you know, I lived in a pretty normal flat um, right outside the university, you still find those extremes there. You know, you have these very, very swish um, buildings that are, you know, filled with apartments that are all owned by Saudi sheikhs. And then, you know, they're right next to these apartment buildings that still have bullet markings and things like that from the war. Did you say swish? Did you say swish? Yeah. (laughs) I've never heard of that. It's a pretty cool word. I want to have to use that again sometime. Yeah. Is that like posh? Yeah, I guess posh. It's sort of upscale. Now all the words that I'm coming like like, are coming to my you mind. Pronounce, right? You pronounce sheikh the right way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I lived in Jordan uh, for a while and I've studied Arabic for a very long time. Uh, I never say I speak Arabic because as um, as somebody who didn't grow up speaking Arabic, you just, you never are ever going to really speak Arabic. You're going to just keep trying to do it your whole life. So yeah, Lebanon. It's about yeah. one third of the size of Maryland. Yes. I I usually say it's Connecticut. Christians there. There's Druze. There's I mean, obviously there's 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 Arabs. There's Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Now there's like a million Syrian uh, refugees there. There's still yeah. four hundred thousand Palestinian refugees that are in camps. One mm-hmm. of which has recently been affected with COVID, which is kind of jumping into the news. Yeah. So yeah, you can tell I've done a little bit of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah. I definitely Wikipedia. <laughs> But I guess to, just to jump back a little, I mean, and I, currently there's some unrest going on right now with mm-hmm. corruption and the current government and, um, you know, there's poverty. The, they reneged on, on some sort of huge loan. Yeah. <laughs> so it just feels like right now, I mean, just to kind of set the stage, it feels like right now Lebanon is the problem we could be facing. Let me give a little bit of a background. You mentioned sort of the various different groups that live there. So I'll give a little bit of a mm-hmm. context for that. And then I can talk a little bit more about the um, about the financial problems and the social unrest that the country's experiencing right now. So the first thing that pretty much everyone thinks of or knows about Lebanon is that it is a, it is a place of a lot of religious diversity and it has what's called a confessional democracy or a confessional political system, which means basically that Political representation is apportioned according to someone's um, confessional identity, their religious identity. It's also called a sectarian system because it's confessions are, you know, Christian or Muslim. Sectarian is like you're Catholic or you're Protestant or you're Sunni or you're Shia. Um, so it's it's actually a sectarian system in that there are specific positions reserved for specific sects. So the president of Lebanon, by convention, by the way, this is not in the country's constitution, is always a Maronite Catholic. Uh, And the prime minister is always um, a Sunni Muslim. But again, this is by convention. There's a lot of Christians there. It's 33% or something like that. Well, that's a really good question because we actually don't have a sense of how many Christians there are because there's only been the last census that was taken in Lebanon that um, sort of calculated this was in 1932. 
Um, and it happened it, right as um, sort of during the French mandate. So the, when the French sort of fun, French colonial empire um, in Lebanon they had a very strong relationship with the Christians in Lebanon and the Christians in Lebanon really saw, particularly the Maronite Christians saw the, the French as their protectors. So even the 1932 census is sort of widely accepted that it was pretty fraudulent in that it overly favored the Christians and specifically the Maronite Christians and how much um, political representation it, it apportioned them. So for a long time, Lebanon had, I think it's six Christians to every five Muslims in the parliament. And even since in 1932, this wasn't really representative of the population. Obviously it's changed rapidly since. And there's much higher birth rates in the Muslim populations. You have a lot of Palestinian and now Syrian refugees coming in. So there's clearly a big imbalance in the way that that the Lebanese sectarian proportion is represented in the government and what the reality of the country is. It's just that we don't have really a strong way or a really solid way of knowing what that is. But I want to make a quick point about the sectarian system in the sense that it's, I think a lot of people... Westerners in particular have a tendency to see this as kind of a natural outcropping of a place or an outgrowth of a place that has a lot of religious diversity. And while um, there's some element of truth to that, there's also it's also important to understand that the sectarian system in Lebanon comes out of a long dialogue between the West and uh, the East. So one of the first sectarian or confessional um, governing systems in Lebanon was instituted in 1860 after there was a lot of violence between the Druze and the Christians. And it was instituted in 1860 by a collaboration between European powers and um, the Ottoman Empire. So this is coming out of a, a conversation between East and West. It's not just something that's endemic to Lebanon. And that's true, again, of the sectarian system of today, where you see these at critical moments, we have interventions by outside powers to kind of keep that sectarian system in place. Could you just do a quick review of the sectarian system? I mean, the sectarian system you said is, I mean, it's, it's different than your, your religious identity. Yes. Uh, the sectarian system, when I say the sectarian system, I mean specifically the sectarian political system. So what that accounts for is that Lebanese um, parliament, for example, you have seats for different parties, but a lot of these parties have a strong sectarian character and you have votes within particular sort of cantons in Lebanon that um, are apportioned for particular sects. So for okay. example, in Beirut, you have a certain number of Christian seats and a certain number of Maron uh, uh, within that, a certain number of Maronite seats and so on and so forth. And then outside of the parliament, there are also positions in the government, like the presidency, the uh, army commander is always a Maronite Christian, things like that, that are reserved for particular um, sectarian individuals as well. You said this was influenced by the West as well. I mean, it was the way they trying to impose some kind of republic or representational government? Yeah. Or was this something that kind of came out of Lebanon? I think it's something, so this is one of the things that is really frustrating and wonderful about Lebanon is that I don't, you know, someone once asked me, would there have been a war in Lebanon and, um, you know, would they've had this big war that they had in 1975 if it wasn't for outside powers? And um, my answer to that is always, you know, it's not really clear to me that Lebanon would exist without outside powers at all. all right. <laughs> so it's always been this place. Um, and, you know, it's a place of extremes, like I said. And every country, to a certain degree, exists in a place where you have a lot of exchange with your neighbors and you exist because of convention. Lebanon is like that to just ramped up to the nth degree. So the sectarian system in Lebanon, there have been people who have been invested in it who are not Lebanese. And of course, there are people who are invested in who are Lebanese as well. I got this sorry, that question got away from me a little bit. <laughs> Am I making any kind of sense here? <laughs> You're really doing a lot with my with broad questions. 
I, I'm a historian. I always go back to Lebanese history. Let's go way back. Yeah. I mean, the Catholics, the Christians consider themselves Phoenicians, right? <laughs> I mean, it's the Bible. Yeah. It's, the, it's the Bible. It's the Canaanites. I mean, yeah. we're going way back. Where? What was? What was Lebanon? So Lebanon was a, it's a, for, you know, a long time, it was part of what we think of now as Syria, when Syria was a part of the Ottoman Empire. So it has a really strong historical affinity with Syria. And when you get down to like the kind of the Phoenicians or the um, the Canaanites, that always makes me laugh a little bit because it's, there's some mythology in Lebanese history that is actually of relatively recent origin, and it doesn't actually make sense if you kind of pace it out. So the a lot of the Christians in Lebanon, they call themselves Phoenicians, or I had a friend once who said, no, 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 we're not Phoenicians. You know, that's the word the Greeks gave us, we're Canaanites. <laughs> I thought Phoenicians were like fishermen or something. Well, yeah. So then, so what you have is actually two different kinds of culture. You have this long history of sort of the the mountains in Lebanon, and there's there are villages there that are um, the mythology of those villages is that that's sort of where the religious they were the refugee refugees from the Ottoman Empire, where you get the Druze and the Christians who were trying to escape the um, the oppressive Ottoman Empire, and that doesn't really hold up historically. But there are little towns in the in the um, mountains that have these just, like incredibly long histories and really interesting ski resorts and ski resorts. Yeah, and it's it's just it's totally heartbreakingly beautiful. You know, you go in the mountains, you feel like you're in Tuscany. It's gorgeous. And then you also have these mind-bogglingly old cities on the coast in Lebanon. So um, Tyre and Sidon and Tripoli in Lebanon. You know, these are some of the oldest continually inhabited cities, literally in human histories. People have lived in Sidon for 9,000 years, right? This just totally blows your mind. But, and this is the, that's actually the Phoenician heritage, right? These are the the traders and the fishermen and the people who have built this empire in the, you know, in ancient times. So these are two distinct distinct histories, and they kind of come together in Lebanon in certain places. But historically, the Christians are actually mostly based in the mountains, so they're not actually in the same sort of realm as the Phoenicians. I set all of that aside a little bit because I think a nation or a country is what its inhabitants believe it is. And so Lebanon has existed since as, a, as its own entity since 1943. And this is sort of, as the Ottoman Empire was sort of slowly falling apart the Lebanese leaned on their um, their pretty close association with the Europeans and were able to, to carve away Lebanon as sort of an enclave. And the way that they pitched it to European powers was that it was going to be this Christian enclave in the Middle East. Again, that's, you know, a contested history, but this is sort of the mythology. And even the mythology, even if it's not particularly accurate, is important because it tells you something about how people see themselves. So you have Lebanon has become separate from Syria around the time of the First World War. It comes under the French mandate. And then in 1943, they achieve their independence from France. And then from that point on, you've got the Lebanese sort of republic. And that you have at the top of it, the the president, you have a prime minister, you have a speaker of the house. And that's sort of when you get the sectarian system uh, that slowly over the years becomes more and more sectarianized. So it's this very intricate, brittle system uh, that doesn't yeah, it's it's not flexible. It's not as resilient. But there's a lot of changes going on um, in Lebanon at the time since 1943. And I think the other really pertinent thing about this is that you get this kind of 19 in the 1950s and 1960s, what people call the Lebanese miracle. Um, and this is where you get that kind of Omar Sharif casino lifestyle, where it becomes this. Um, they, it's sort of the Switzerland, yeah, <laughs> the Switzerland of the Middle East. People go skiing, yeah, you know, in the morning and to the beach in the afternoon, and it's um, you know you have all the the oil wealth coming in, but it's also they have these free banking laws and banking secrecy conventions. So I think of it as kind of 
of like a forerunner of what we have now, which are these like really hyper globalized cities like Dubai um, and Hong Kong and things like that. So that was Lebanon in the 1950s. But it seems like Dubai is kind of looking for that old Beirut, what would you say, kind of cultural substance. Yeah, yeah. It's become a banking center, you know, where that was sort of Beirut's. It's true. They got a ski resort and a shopping mall. Oh my gosh, have you been to that ski resort? It's a bit sad. <laughs> no, I, somebody told me about it. I said, I can't. No, I, w- I went to go look at it when I was in Dubai and I was just kind of like, this is, wow. Um, yeah, I think Dubai would love to be something like Beirut. And one of the things that's really interesting that you have is um, in the years after the war, when Dubai, Beirut has been completely gutted, um, you have a lot of people coming in from the Gulf and almost turning Beirut more into a Dubai. Um, but what all of that sort of ignores is that Beirut has this, and Lebanon in particular, has a really, really rich, deep intellectual and cultural history that it comes from these years of overlapping cultures, this exchange from East and West that Dubai just cannot compete with and that the Gulf is totally, it's just a totally different, um, it's just a totally different culture. So one of the reasons that I, I really strongly believe a place like Dubai could never be as vibrant as um, as Beirut was or is still is that it doesn't have pretty basic things like freedom of speech or um, really long history of intellectual freedom that you get. Um, in Beirut, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, the other thing that was going on besides this sort of influx of global wealth was there were rising totalitarian powers in Syria and Egypt and a lot of other Europe, um, Middle Eastern countries. And as a result, a lot of the intellectuals who were and the cultural leaders who were pushed out of those countries by censorship, by government censorship, ended up in Beirut. So you have, um, there's a really strong avant-garde scene as well in Lebanon. And it is it is actually a cultural sort of leading leading cultural light of the of the region. What happened? <laughs> the, the war. <laughs> I think one of the things that I um, that people that I always sort of lead with when I talk about the war is um, you're talking about the civil war. So the civil war comes it sort of breaks out in 1975. One of the things is that you can't be the only free society <laughs> in an island of not free societies, and that was Lebanon, pretty much more or less um, where it was in 1975. The other thing that happens is um, is Israel, and so when Israel became a, a state in 1948, you have an influx of Palestinian refugees into Lebanon, but most of them actually go into Jordan. And that kind of simmers along. And in 1970 is when there's this huge rupture between the Palestinians and the Jordanians called Black September. That because the Palestinians have this long history, they also have a very long history of a really deep intellectual, political history and culture. And um, they have a lot of leftists. So when they're in Jordan, they initiate a, a revolution against the monarchy and the monarchy throws them out. When they throw them out, they throw them essentially into Lebanon. So in 1970, you have the PLO essentially arrives in Lebanon and arrives in Beirut. And what that does is it exacerbates a lot of building tensions in Lebanon that are tensions that are already building in Lebanon, because this kind of international playground that I described to you in the 1950s and 1960s, that's happening for some people in Lebanon. Not for everybody. You also have really sharply rising income inequality, sort of a degradation of basic social services and things like that, and an exacerbation of a lot of problems that Lebanon might have been able to handle. You mentioned something about them being overlooked with the industrial changes. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of a move from rural to urban as well. 
Yeah, it was. There's So you have a lot of people coming from the rural centers of Lebanon and sort of influx into Beirut. It becomes a country, it sort of bypasses what we would think of as normal development, like industrial development, and goes right into becoming a service economy, which is, you know, one path to development. But it means that you're kind of bypassing all of this buildup and structure that would allow you to survive even without the global economy. So it's really, I always describe it as a really extroverted economy and a really extroverted political system. It's really subject to the vagaries of the global economy, the global marketplace. Still, it's maybe 20 years ahead of its time. It really is. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I love about studying this place is that there's so many currents in it that are universal, that every country has to a greater or lesser degree. It's just that it has it at the most extreme. So it's happening, you know, much earlier than it is anywhere else. And, um, and yeah, so the war, I think, is a, is a reflection of some of the fact that it has this political system that's, you know, it's got all this tension building up in it. The, the Palestinians come and that increases the tension. Um, but there's still kind of this moment in 1975, I think, when the war breaks out, when the Lebanese government, the Lebanese political class might have been able to change it. And um, and they just can't pull it off, unfortunately. And that's when you get the start of the civil war. And part of the reason they can't pull it off is because of how used Lebanese parties are to pulling in outside outsiders into the conflict. So then, you know, pretty quickly you have the Israelis involved in covert and overt ways. You ha- The Palestinians are involved right off the bat. Syrians get involved. The United States gets involved. So that by Man. 19... 19- the Iranians get involved as well. So by 1982, what we call and what we think of as the Lebanese Civil War has, there are armies from six different countries operating in Lebanon. <laughs> and we call it a civil war, which is so strange to me. Uh, you know, there are civil elements of it, and it's important to understand the civil elements. It's more like a state fair. It is, yeah. It's. I think of it often as, you know, the way that, uh, I don't know if you've read any, yeah, Yassin al Haj Salis work on the uh, on the Syrian civil war, the Impossible Revolution, which is a, is a really good book. Um, he talks about the Syrian civil war as sort of a localized world war. It's a world war that's happening in Syria, and that's kind of how I also think of the Lebanese war. There are important differences between what's going on in Syria and Lebanon. Um, what's going on in Syria now, and what's going on what was going on in Lebanon then. Um, but there is an element of similarity. What was the major disruption in the civil war? I mean, it was, I mean, obviously it was the Palestinians coming in. They weren't really represented. They weren't. And they were also. Why are they all, why are these such, let me jump back. Yeah. I spent a little bit of time in Jordan, very little bit. Yeah. And I just walked, I was in Amman, Jordan. I was working on something and I remember just walking around town. You know, you'd meet people and they'd be kind of quiet. They're from Jordan, but then you'd meet like a Palestinian and it was just, wow, they were a little bigger. And yeah, <laughs> more and more colorful. Yeah, and um, kind of when you look at what they were moved away from. I mean, there's you know everything around the Dead Sea, which is kind of lush and verdant, and then once you get into mm-hmm. Jordan, it's it's, very it's a little hard scrabble, right? <laughs> Some part yeah, of it. it's a but, and it, like I said, it's a very uh, you know I hate. I don't love that I come back to this a lot because I, I think cult, you have to, we have to think of culture as changing and not as essential. You know, it, it transforms over time and it's normal for it to do that. But they are very different cultures, the Palestinian and Jordanian culture. Again, as, as Westerners, we tend to paint the Middle East with a pretty broad brush, but it's a very diverse place. Um, and it's really hard to say that, you know, oh, these people, we can just move them over here and, and things like that because, because it's just not, um, you know, it's not necessarily compatible. Yeah. So, Palestinian part of town just reminded me of, um, 
like uh, Kreuzberg, you know, it's like little leftist yeah. part of sections of villages where there was like, you know, people sitting around in cafes talking about, yeah. you know, communal activities and standing up against the government. The contrast is really strong in Jordan, too, I, you know, because in Jordan, you have a much more it's a much more hierarchical culture. People are much more deferential to the monarchy. And I think there's, it's a little bit more, it's more conservative. You know, mm-hmm. my friend used to joke that the, the Jordanians are like the Germans of the Middle East. You know, they don't, they just like hardly ever <laughs> smile, <laughs> which, you know, it's not necessarily true. I love Jordan a lot, but it, it was, it's a very different, yeah, it's a very different environment. The Palestinians, I mean, in Palestine, you have a really long history of, of a really long political history. There are a lot of important political thinkers who are coming from Palestine and they're very engaged in, I mean, some of the major resistance against the British mandate in Palestine, it was led by Palestinians because they wanted to govern their own, you know, um, they wanted to govern themselves and they wanted their own self-determination. And one of the great ironies is that often you saw during the mandatory period in Palestine, Palestinians fighting alongside, you know, the Jewish settlers against the British mandate. So it's, you know, it's one of those places that you can look at and think you understand, but unless you understand the context of what people, what the stakes are for people, then um, then it's going to always be a little surprising. Some Palestinians were Jewish too. Yeah, there was. So one of the things I talk about in my dissertation is the... I think a lot of it comes down to this question of what is a state? This is my turn for broad questions. Now. You know, what, the, what is sure. the point of a state? What is the point of a state in the sense that it's like, is the state supposed to be a place where one particular identity, a religious, an ethnic, a racial identity has a majority? Or is it a, just a place where people who kind of all live in an area have agreed to be governed collectively? Part of what I think is going on in the Middle East in the 1970s, and even today to a certain extent, is this tension between the reality of the region as a, it's, a, it's just an inescapably diverse place. And a tendency, I, particularly on the part of Americans, to, to see that diversity as a risk and to try to reverse engineer out of it. One of the um, tensions that exists in Israel, for example, is this idea of is, should Israel be a Jewish state or should it be a democratic state? If it's going to be a Jewish state, then it cannot be a democratic state. And if it's going to be a democratic state and really enfranchise everybody who's living in the borders of Israel, then it will not be a Jewish majority state anymore. And, you know, you see the people of Israel grappling with this question and, um, you see more or less the same kind of questions happening, you know, cropping up um, in other countries in the region. And in Lebanon, the way that that question came up during the civil war, is Lebanon going to be a Christian country or is it going to be Lebanon? Is it going to be what it is and what it always has been, which is a changing, diverse place where identities shift over time? I was just reading in order to be Lebanon, your father has to be Lebanese. (laughs) Yeah, we can get into the, the problems with the way that gender kind of reads into all of this, you know, is is very interesting. But I think that's a that's not just a Lebanon problem. Yeah, we got it all. We got it all sorted out. <laughs> Lebanese women are fighting for the right to be able to um, to to give their give citizenship to their children, even if they're not married to a Lebanese um, citizen. And I'm hopeful that that will that that will change soon. I hope so too. Yeah. Yeah. There are just more women. There are just more more women making decisions than in the Middle East. <laughs> Why limit it to the Middle East, right? You know, and it pertains to the question um, that I was asking earlier, of, you know, what is a state? Because if you look at particularly the war, for example, there's an argument over who gets to be Lebanese. 
and we go back and forth all the time. We say, okay, is, is it Christians? Is it Muslims? Is it Palestinians? Is it Syrians? Is it the refugees? But the, we, one thing that doesn't often come up is, is it men or is it women? And in a lot of ways, one of the things that we do often when we look at these moments, these wars and things like that, we pay a lot of attention to these um, kind of great plumes and flares of violence in history, but we don't pay attention to the kind of basic everyday violence that a lot of people live with because they're not considered full citizens just by dint of their gender or their race. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, obviously it's a question I could talk about hours for hours and hours. It's, it's, it's an ongoing struggle, I guess is what I would say. I wanted to jump in and, and ask about your experience there and you, what, like yeah. what you were doing. And you, I guess you said you were living in Beirut near the university. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to ask you where you get your news about Lebanon. Yeah, it's a good question. Twitter, what is it? Al Jazeera? Is yeah. it Haaretz? Is it, I mean, they're saying that there's just, you know, Israeli fighter jets just flying over Beirut. Oh yeah, that happens all the time. You could, I still hear them from my flat. So maybe you could tell me about, you know, you, what you're doing there, what it, what it was like living there and how, and how you're kind of keeping track of what's happening. You know, I didn't actually notice the jets so much because um, I'm from a military family. My dad was in the Air Force, so I grew up on um, on Air Force bases. So I just never really no- noticed jet noises when I when I hear them because it's pretty normal in the background for me. And a friend was You're visiting. Like, oh, it's an F-35. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that good, but yeah. 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 Um, so I... And doing basically was just living there doing research for for the dissertation. And as a historian, it's not as um, exciting as it sounds. I wish it was like Indiana Jones, but it's I more just sort of I'm sitting in the basement of um, the archives at AUB or the library at AUB reading, you know, newspaper after newspaper after newspaper until my eyes cross. Basically kind of trying to figure out what it is I'm going to be writing about for the dissertation. And Lebanon was a great place to do this because it has a really vibrant uh, expat community. And and I think there's just like, it's really fun to be a young person in Beirut. So um, if this ties in with your other question of where do I get my news about Lebanon, which is that I have a lot of friends, I'm fortunate in that I had a lot of friends who are journalists in Lebanon. Um, so I follow particular people on Twitter and pay attention to what they say is going on. And this was really helpful when the, um, when the revolution broke out in October 2019, last October, the the protests sort of protests started happening, and I kind of was like, "Oh, it's you know, it's Lebanon. There's always protests going on," um, but then they stuck, and it became a full blown revolution. But it just really wasn't getting covered a lot because you know Lebanon is just not a place a lot of people pay attention to right off the bat uh, because it's so small, it doesn't have oil, things like that. Um, so those are so it's it's good to have particular people that I know that I can trust my friend. Uh, Yeah. And I think like, you know, the Washington Post, uh, NPR and things like that, they all have bureaus in Beirut and those tend to be pretty good coverage. The Daily Star is a Lebanese English language daily that has very, fairly good coverage. It is owned by, I think, a Saudi conglomerate. So it does tend to support a particular particular viewpoint. But, you know, if you know that, you can kind of go in and yeah. Well, and, and also it just tends to be a little bit more conservative. It's a little mm-hmm. center right. But it's, you know, it's it's just information, which is good. It, living there was, uh, it was wonderful. I had, I t- had a total blast. I loved it. The first time I ever visited Beirut was when I was living in Jordan. 
And as you've mentioned, you know, Jordan, Amman is just a very different place. The contrast is huge. And I actually didn't like it at first because it is, it's so chaotic. <laughs> it's a place that, you know, the downtown is, was really damaged in the war. After the war was ended, people kind of, developers went in, tore everything down and built everything up. So it looks very like glossy and uh, very swish, if you will. <laughs> and But it's totally dead and totally empty. It has none of the character that it used to, unfortunately. But you still have these little pockets of character um, in the different neighborhoods in Lebanon. And it is a place, a very different neighborhood. So where I lived, Hamra, right near the American University of Beirut, it's sort of the old avant-garde sort of leftist enclave in Lebanon. So that used to be where all the cafes were, where you would have, you know, people like film premieres and things like that. So Hamra, and it's it's just a very, um, I really loved it because it's uh, it's a really busy place. You have quarters in the eastern part of the city, like Ashrafia and Jemeze, which are predominant, are incredibly beautiful. They used to be the French sectors of the city. They're just, the architecture is, you feel like you're in Europe. <laughs> it's really totally disorienting sometimes. And they're very are they preserving that as like an architectural identity or is it just kind of being switched over? Unfortunately, there's just not a lot of preservation. I mean, there's preservation efforts here and there in Lebanon and in Beirut, but unfortunately, no. <laughs> it's right. just sort of the short answer there. There's one or two buildings that have been attempted to be preserved. There is a real strong European flavor. You know, you have the alfresco dining and everybody stops working at about 4 p.m. and you always have a glass of wine at lunch and things like that. But it is still an Arab city as well. So you have and, and different um, different neighborhoods reflect that. And the places I've described are places that I went to and that I frequented because as an expat, I was relatively well off. And on top of all of this, like sort of in the background of all of this, you have incredibly impoverished neighborhoods. You have refugee camps. You have places that are much more on the fringes um, and that look like they belong perhaps not in Europe, but in, you know, Sudan or something. Exactly. In a much less developed country than Lebanon actually is. So again, you get this kind of, these kind of extremes. Two things that I always sort of warn people about in Lebanon. One is that the traffic there is like nothing I have ever experienced in my life. And I, I do think it's important and evocative to know a little bit about that because it is just, I have never been more terrified for my life. I'm a pretty adventurous driver. You know, I drove all over Jordan and I, I um, I'm not, uh, somebody who gets scared easily in tra- driving situations, but there are roads in Lebanon that I just won't go on um, because it's, you know, you've got four lanes of traffic that are heading in two different directions and um, up these sort of pinback curves in the mountain. And everybody's talking on the phone, smoking and putting makeup on uh, at the same time that they're also driving. And it's just it's truly terrifying. But it gives you kind of a sense of just, it's a busy place. There's always 18 things going on. But then I would also say the Lebanese people, there's in any Arab country, there's a strong um, tradition of hospitality. In Lebanon, it's just ramped up. Again, it's total extreme. I have it's never lonely there. There, Everyone is incredibly welcoming and warming. You always have um, fascinating conversations with people. And I think Beirut is a place where everybody's kind of a stranger. Even if you're Lebanese, there are very few people who are born and raised in Beirut. They all kind of came from another town. But because everybody's a stranger, that just sort of means everybody fits in. So yeah, I really miss it. I mean, yeah, I hate to do like a broad brush with like, yeah, we could learn from the Lebanese. But it it just seems like there are so many complicated combinations of identities there that it's almost something that every (laughs) is to the point where everybody's sort of a misfit. Or what they have in common is that they have a lot of differences. Particularly with young people and young people who have 
And there's an appreciation that everybody's identity is complex, that you aren't reducible to, you know, a particular sect or a particular class or a particular even nationality. A lot of Lebanese, um, you know, live in Lebanon or they work in Lebanon and have lived for a while in the United States or have gone to school in Switzerland or have lived for a while in Cyprus. You know, there's a lot of people who kind of, it's a just, a, it's a meeting place. And I also, I want to, I do want to say though, that that is, um, speaking from a place of privilege, right? That's a, that's a particular sector of Lebanese society. There are plenty of Lebanese people who don't have the same kind of advantage in terms of being able to travel in and out of Lebanon and have this kind of eclectic cosmopolitan. I would say it's a very cosmopolitan place for a lot of people, but that's not for everybody in Lebanon. You know, one of the things you had mentioned that you kind of want to talk about is sort of how is it possible that somebody that a terrorist could emerge from Lebanon. And that's something that um, I thought that was a really, you know, really provocative question and really interesting to think about. And I think it gets at this kind of two sides of Lebanon that I've been talking about, where as an expat and as somebody who's educated and who's coming into this particular circle in Lebanon, I, it was it would be possible for me if I didn't study the history to never experience anything else than what I've described for you, this kind of cosmopolitan place that's, you know, it can be frustrating. There's not electricity 24 hours a day, but it's still really fun. Um, but this other side of Lebanon too, where people face you know, not just in income inequality and things like that, but it's a function of the way that the Lebanese state operates. It's this open society. It has a very pared back government. Um, so from a sort of global market perspective, that's very enticing. But what that, that translates into is that there are a lot of people who are just sort of, there's just no social safety net whatsoever outside of your particular family, outside of your particular sect. There's no social safety net whatsoever. So um, the South of Lebanon for, is a really good example for this. Traditionally, the Shia in Lebanon and the Christians who in Lebanon who lived in the South were the most historically, socially and politically and economically disadvantaged. They're the ones who kind of were um, overlooked um, in a lot of this development. That during this, the war, they begin, you see a sort of a beginnings of some social and political consciousness in, in those populations and a beginning of a movement to become more, to demand more rights from the government and to demand more protections from the government. And all of this, the, the layer over all of this is that the, the PLO is largely based in the South of Lebanon as well. So that's where the Israelis are also attacking. So they're, it's just not great. <laughs> I always say South Lebanon was at war about five years before the rest of Lebanon was at war because of what they experienced with the um, Israeli PLO fighting. That's confusing. Do you think that, oh, the PLO is fighting against the Israelis? How did the Shia sort of fall in? Because the Shia don't always get along with the PLO, right? right? So, and then you have Christians. Yeah. You think, well, Christians are going to probably, what's in it for us? How did that work out in the South? So that is, I appreciate you bringing my attention to that because I've been in the weeds on a lot of this stuff for so long. So sometimes these alliances make perfect sense to me and I forget that they only make sense to me because I'm a crazy person who spends all my time thinking about this. Kind of rewinding back to like 1970, say when the PLO kind of first really moves in force into the south of Lebanon. The situation there is that the the Shia are just beginning and and the Christians, I would say. So I think that the major identity that people would bring to the fore in the 1970 would be that they're from South Lebanon, not necessarily that they're Shia or Christian or that they're particularly upper or lower class. It's more just that they're from South Lebanon because that was a big enough distinction in terms of the way that they were sort of access to government 
um, and access to these to the to the economic growth um, that that might have been the major cleavage there. That starts to change when the PLO comes in. But even when the PLO first comes in, there's still a lot of support even among the Christians for the Palestinian cause. So even if they're experiencing Israeli raids and things like that, there's a much more of a strong identification with the PLO and the Palestinians than there is with the Israelis or with some of the more elite Christians from the North who are very anti-Palestinian, if that makes sense. Again, this all kind of changes over the course of the war, though. So in 1978, the Israelis first invaded Lebanon into the South. They only go part of the way in. But that is enough to create tensions in the relationship between the PLO and the Shia and the Christians in the South. Christians in the South start to begin to identify more with Israel and ally with Israel. The Shia begin at this point to start, they've already had long ties to Iran, but they're really cultivating Syria as a major patron at that point. And this is when you have the foundation of something called Amal, which is the major Shia party for most of the war up through, I would say like 1982, 1983. Hezbollah breaks off from Amal because of a dispute over, essentially, Amal wants to work within the system. It's a, it's sort of a moderate alliance at that point where they say, okay, we're going to, we want to sort of grab a share of the sectarian pie. For example, Hezbollah is much more radical in this when it begins. Um, and again, it begins in this really inchoate way. In Lebanon though, Hezbollah, it wasn't imported. It wasn't imported. It begins in Lebanon. And I, the, my sense of it, and I think there were a lot of different sort of points of resistance against the ML leadership they sort of staked themselves out and then over time gradually coalesced, if that makes sense. That's kind of the image I have in my mind of how Hezbollah began. And they've had a long, I mean, the Shia in Lebanon have a very long history of um, connections with Iran. So it's not surprising that Iran eventually becomes one of their patrons, but actually the major patron for a really long time is Syria. Um, and that relationship is really fascinating as well. So I could, again, something I could talk for hours about, but um, maybe it's not that interesting. But to get to the what I was trying to talk about, which was, you know, how Lebanon's particular situation allows for the rise of, of what we would consider and what is seen in a lot of um, international circumstances as terrorism and terrorist groups. If you're in South Lebanon and you come from a poor family, you don't have access to good education. You don't have access to jobs. You don't have any welfare. You don't have health care. You know, you don't have any sense of a safety net. And the thing that provides you all of those things is the party, is Hezbollah. Um, So they really act as the state in South Lebanon. And that is how you get people who have a lot of loyalty to, you know, to the to the party. And it makes a lot of sense because the way that they behave in Lebanon, by and large, is as a political party and as a major patronage group. Hezbollah is designated a terrorist organization in the United States. It's a really, it's in a really gray area. <laughs> really, how so? Because they're doing a lot of, they're providing, they're providing safety now. Yeah, and they function as a political party in Lebanon. They have seats in parliament. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of really interesting work on Hezbollah because it is, you know, it's it's one of these organizations that just doesn't fit into a particular mold. So um, Augustus Richard Norton has written a lot of really good books, and he's a very interesting source on that. Um, on Hezbollah. So I really recommend his work. And I actually specifically organized, well, not specifically, but organized my um, dissertation so that I don't actually talk about um, Hezbollah and Iran that much. They come into the fore in the, very much in the post-1985 period. I write about the period from 1975 to 1985. 
in part because of how rich the scholarship is on Hezbollah and on Iran. And I just didn't have the bandwidth to add that into everything else that I was studying. It's a lot more complicated, I think, than a lot of the the popular narrative about it. Yeah, I mean, it's just been, I just remember hearing Hezbollah when I was in grade school. It's been around for a while. It has, yeah. And it, I mean, the major sort of moment that people assign to Hezbollah, in particular in relation to the war and in relation to U.S. policy in, in Lebanon in particular, is the 1983 embassy bombing. Right. The interesting thing is actually, it's not at all clear. The re- so that was actually claimed an organization called the uh, Islamic Jihad Organization. Black September? No, it's it's thought to be, well, so it's called Islamic Jihad. That was the um, organization that claimed responsibility for it. Throwing, I'm just throwing terrorist names at you. I have no idea what I'm <laughs> yeah. talking about. And so, so it's believed that Islamic Jihad eventually joined forces with Hezbollah, but it's not at all clear what the relationship is. Well, and what the relationship is. And but Magnia was Magnia was definitely Hezbollah. Yes, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Um, and Black September, that's more like that's Ali Hassan Salameh. That's like Munich. a little bit earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Confusing my fictional books with uh, nonfiction. <laughs> no, okay. Well, because you mentioned you're reading the Kai Bird book. So it's, it makes sense you were thinking of that because Ali Hassan Salameh is a totally, he's a Palestinian. Uh, he's the one who organized the Munich attacks. And he was a really big player in Lebanon until he was assassinated in 1978, I want to say. Um, so in the first couple of years uh, in Lebanon, he actually tried to engineer a military coup. Uh, yeah, he's all over the place. So so it makes sense that that's at the top of your mind. So you're, ta- you're talking about the embassy bombings in 83, or the Marine bombing yeah. and the embassy in 84. Um, and th- there was an embassy bombing in 83 too, actually. People always forget about that one. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. In April, 83, there was the embassy bombing. And then I think it's October 83 was the bur- Marine barracks bombing. And then in 84, there was the second embassy bombing, right. which was like the annex bombing. Yeah. Then the Americans pulled out. And then the Americans left. Yeah. Um, and that is a really interesting story. And it's one that I always, it always interests me that it, it's not something that people think of right away when they talk about Reagan's foreign policy. And I think it gets sort of overshadowed because the invasion of Granada was around the same time that we, you know, made the decision to pull out of Lebanon. So it kind of, that sort of spun as a foreign policy success. Mm-hmm. And um, so the, so it gets a little bit overlooked, but it is, yeah, that whole story of sending in the Marines and the, the multinational force is, is one that it has a lot of valence, I think, today too, because there was this big debate at the time of, do we, you know, do we send the Marines in to a mission that we're not sure we can accomplish or do we stay out? You know, is it, it's restraint versus engagement in U.S. foreign policy. And they're having this argument in the in the Reagan White House and they go back and forth. And, um, you know, you could argue, you could look at it and say, oh, you know, it's total proof that we should you know, for more isolationism in U.S. foreign policy that we shouldn't send in, we shouldn't get involved, we shouldn't have interventions. Or you can look at it and say, well, we never actually fully intervened with both our feet in. We kind of were always one foot in, one foot out. And it's really proof that if we had been totally gung-ho, we would have we would have been able to make the situation there better. But it's, you know, it's an evergreen debate. It's one that we have today <laughs> um, about Syria, about, um, about, Yemen about, you know, all sorts of places. Yeah. Should we stay or should or should we go? And what I always land on is I think it's a really fascinating debate, but I think it misses the fact that the assumption in there, right, is that there's only really one way to go in, which is to send in the Marines. <laughs> but there's a lot of other ways to get involved. And there's a lot of other I don't know if it's encouraging or frustrating to know that that's a debate that's been held um, 
in the NSC since the 1980s, at least. Yeah. <laughs> and we still haven't come up with a good answer. But I think that it, we miss the fact that there's, you know, there's a wide scale of involvement before we get to boots on the ground that kind of gets overlooked, yeah. um, largely because we do tend to ignore Lebanon until there's a crisis. The Trump administration pulled out funding for the PLO refugee camps. I suppose that's yeah. kind of a problem it's there. Um, we've got about five minutes left. <laughs> And uh, sure. <laughs> I would just kind of like to draw it back to kind of currently what's going on right now in Lebanon. I I was totally taken by surprise by the by the revolution in the best way. I, it was one of the most thrilling things. I was devastated that I wasn't there to to witness it in person, but I think it was one of the most thrilling things I've seen from afar and in Lebanon in a long time. It is unfortunate that. What you saw there was a, just sort of an outburst of unity. A lot of the ways that the uh, Lebanese political class prevents, or, you know, stops a conversation from happening about reform is that it keeps people divided and it it emphasizes sectarianism is a tool that the ruling classes use to divide the population and to, um, and to kind of prevent any challenges to their hegemony. What you saw in the, in the fall of 2019 was just a total repudiation of that. People, Lebanese people from across the country were feeling just this strong sense of solidarity with each other. There was a real commitment across the country to not, to a, to avoiding violence, to having a peaceful protest, and to staying out on the streets. And you saw people taking huge risks. One of the precipitating factors was that Lebanon's economy is in massive crisis and has been for a long time. And people's, the currency is um, devaluing at a pretty rapid rate. And uh, so people's savings are getting wiped out. They're losing jobs with no hope. You know, like these are people who are like accountants and, you know, these are like good jobs that are not coming back. Um, so you saw people taking real risks for each other, people who had jobs going out onto the street to protest with people who didn't have jobs and things like that. So it was really exciting. The tragedy, of course, is that the coronavirus um, pandemic has made it impossible to continue the protests at the same level and has added to the economic burden that Lebanon is facing. Um, in the last week, there have been some protests. The tenor of those protests, viewing from afar and from what I've heard from people on the ground, is that the tenor is a little bit angrier. Things that were, prices were rising in Lebanon before this, but it was always like imported stuff or meat. Now it's like tomatoes. <laughs> tomatoes are twice the price that they used to be, you know, staples and things like that. So people are really actually going hungry. It's hard to be confident that there's a, that there's a happy ending um, to this. What I would say though, is that I was totally surprised by the outgrowth of solidarity and by the way that the protest happened in, this, in the fall. My hope is that I can be surprised again and that the, you know, the political class will demonstrate some courage and to, and really embrace the necessary reforms. But, um, but you never, yeah, I'm not going to hold my breath for that. Unfortunately, you know, one of the small benefits that comes from just not people, just not trusting the government. Um, and most of the people living through a civil war is that way before the Lebanese government shut down the country to sort of prevent the spread of the pandemic, you just everybody in Beirut was just like, nope, we're shutting everything. <laughs> we're, you know, we're not waiting for the government to take care of this. Like it was everything was shut down. People were really conscientious about it. Um, and there were a few, I think I saw um, car convoy protests. So people driving through the streets and things like that. Um, we'll see in the next probably few weeks how things are going to develop. But my guess is that as people, you know, unless there are major political changes, 
prices will continue uh, to rise, currency will continue to be devalued, and um, and people will start going hungry. And that is going to lead to a very different kind of situation. So um, it's something, unfortunately, to pay attention to. Well, glad I had a chance to pay attention to it with you in this, in this interview. Much appreciated. And thanks for being on the live drop. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And um, yeah, take care. Take care. That was my talk with Emily Whalen, recorded a month ago on May 20th, 2010. You can find her on Twitter at IE Whalen or at emilyingridwhalen.com. For more information, along with any resources mentioned in this episode, uh, it'll all be listed in the show notes at thelivedrop.com. It's been two years doing the Live Drop podcast. I'd like to say thanks to the listeners out there. Be safe, be discerning, stay curious. End of transmission. Transmission.